Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. Didi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Chanel. Now, ever since I got into the studio today, Didi has been giving me this look, Mm -hmm. and I have no idea what it's about, so I'm just going to ignore it. No, don't ignore it. Ask me what it is. Ask me what this look is on my face. What? I figured it out. Oh, no. I figured it out. Okay, so, well, I think I have. You know, you reckon you've got the perfect place to hide a dead body. I do. And last episode, I think it was the last episode, you said something along the lines of, oh, and when I drive around town and I see these places and something or other, something or other, which made me think, okay, whatever it is, there's multiples of them. So I'm thinking churches. And then I thought, oh, cemetery. No. Oh, bugger. If it was, if it was right, I'd tell you. It's not right. Damn. Yeah. I thought that was it. because though. Isn't that good? Like, I feel like that's happened before. Someone has tried to hide a dead body in a cemetery. It makes so much sense. You would because what you wouldn't go looking there. You wouldn't go looking there. So you would just take your dead body in, and you would find a recently dug grave. Pop it in. Bung it in. Who's ever going to dig it up? And don't they have to go through all sorts of, you know, you can't just go and and um, uh, what's the word exhume. A gravesite, so people just can't just go along and go. But when they we'll got just there, check. put Joe Blow in there, who's meant to be in. There. No, he's already in there. No, he got buried that day. He got buried that day. So oh. you watch, you watch the graveyard. You you see the person go in, get and buried, then re-dig the mound, pop your dead body on top. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's a lot of digging though. Yeah, but I can hardly get up in the morning to go to F forty five. There's no way I'm going to dig a dead. To go to what? If what's F45? Or to go work out. Is that, oh, how fit and healthy. So is that wrong? Damn it. Damn. 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 wrong. I promise Damn. you it's wrong. Look, it's even in my, my notes. Wrong. I wrote it. I got it during the week. I was actually brushing my teeth and I just stopped and there was just a, my electric toothbrush. Wrong. I'm thinking, I've got it. Is but if you think you it? can guess my dead body spot, you can email us. And I will address the emails and say whether they're wrong or right. Please. Can someone help? Oh, they're so annoying. I really thought that was it. Okay. No. Deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com. Oh, I hate you a little bit right now, but I'm... Most people do. Okay. Okay. I want to talk about juries. Oh. Because I've recently been waiting for a jury to come back. Ooh. I'm a court reporter. And I've been thinking about juries and all the awful things they have to see and all the awful dead body pictures they see all the time. So you get an envelope in the mail, you turn up for jury duty, and then by the afternoon you're one of 12 people sitting there on a murder trial with a whole book full of pictures of dead bodies. Do you have to look at them? Absolutely. So at the beginning of the... Trial when they or when during jury selection, can they say, "Look, I I'm squeamish. I'm going to throw up." Yeah, if I, well, I think people could say as a valid excuse, "I don't think I can handle how awful the the trial is." And definitely in one that I sat in on, uh, they impaneled the jury, and after one day, a man came back and said, "I just can't do this. I simply can't." But the, yeah. I really do have been thinking about the trauma 
that juries go through because they're sort of the unfor- they're forgotten in in the trial process. They sit there, they absorb it, they have to take in all the horrid uh, facts about what happened. They sometimes watch crime scene videos that still have the dead body in them, <sighs> and you have to remember as well. Sometimes these murders are about children, so part boy, oh boy, and being a journo, you do see. There's booklets that uh, the defence and the prosecutors have, and they're all, you can tell which ones the photo book, booklets are. They're issued by Victoria Police, and they have a light blue sort of cover on them. And there'll be times when a prosecutor will want to refer to a photo and will flip through the book. And, of course, at the start of those books or at some point in them are all the autopsy photos. Oh. And there are times where wow. they'll begin to flick through those photos, and you can actually see from where you're sitting in the court um, the dead bodies in the photos. How do you react when that happens? Well, do you know Chanel? what? When I was a young, silly journo, I my goal, I always used to look to see, to see if I could see the photos as they were flicking through them, and now I look away. Now I don't want to look at them. Those photos, are they kept... Um I mean, they would never be really offered for public consumption, would they? No. So there are times where we would apply for photos, and but they might be photos of a weapon or a specific um, thing that's really crucial to the case. But we will always write on the application, we don't want any photos of bodies or anything like that. Because at mm. times, you know, if, if a weapon falls in a crime scene and it's next to a body, we don't want to see body. Or we have to make an agreement to blur that part out. Mm. But an interesting fact they looked up. So around 6,500 people sit on trials as as a juror, 6,500 people every year. How many of those people do you think in 2017 Mm. sought counselling after that? 6,500. Oh, I'm going to say at least 50% more. Were those all murder trials? Not all murder trials. No. There'd be a range of different things. 50%. 50%. Half. Eight. <gasps> really? So eight they absorb jurors, it somehow. Eight jurors out of 6,500, according to the Victorian Jury Council, sought help. So eight in 2017 and 17 in 2016 went for counselling. Of those 25 in total, eight were diagnosed with uh, suffering some sort of trauma. 13 had personal stress issues. Another four had suffered anxiety as a result of the trials they sat on. It'd be interesting to talk to them, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And I just think that they it's such an important role, people that sit on, on mm. juries. They're deciding people's fate. They're deciding what happens to people's lives. And that combined with the awful facts they have to deal with. And then at the end of it, they deliver their verdict they stand up, they're thanked by the court for their time, and they walk out into the world. And you have to remember, some of these trials go for six, eight, ten weeks. Mm. That's time away from their families. They're not allowed to discuss any of the details of the case with their families. Which would make it worse if they were trying to cope with having seen, if they can't tell someone what they've seen, because sometimes it helps just to unload it. Definitely. And then there are times where they'll hear all the evidence of the trial, but when it actually gets up to the deliberating part, where they're all in the room talking, some of them aren't allowed to go home. Home. They're then put in hotels and they deliberate. They go back to the hotels. They come back and deliberate and they can do that for days and days and days. Wow. And I just had thought about it, that there must be so many jurors out there that have seen these awful photos, seen these dead bodies, and then they're just back into the real world, back at their nine to five job on Monday 
after doing all that? And that wow. must be. And I suppose, do you think the um, the most important thing out of out of those photos is that the protection? Um, what would it be? The, like protecting the family of the deceased, as in not yeah. prolonging their agony. I mean, that would be another thing if the family are there in the court. They're seeing the pictures too. Absolutely, and it's not even the the dead bodies part. And this is a little bit graphic. So I'm just referring to an article that I found online, and they interviewed a juror, but it was actually she was on a Canadian jury, and she said that the jury she was on. Uh, she it was a man who had raped women and he had filmed those rapes yeah so as part of their service they as a juror they had to watch those videos oh, and they had to watch those videos over and over and over again and there wasn't just one victim mm. and she said you know those that will stick with her for the rest of her life like those images and that would be the same with those pictures that jurors are given um there was another article written by Andrew Guthrie Ferguson. He writes for The Atlantic and he said, death remains a routine part of jury service and jurors often have to internalise the job of dealing with someone's fate uh, while dealing with the horrors of the crime itself. And that word internalise I think is really important because, again, they have to take it all on by themselves. I got asked to do jury duty once, mm, but it was that? when I was doing breakfast radio. So um, work got me out of doing it and said that I wasn't – and easily replaced if you're a person who's like, you know, a character or your yep. personality there. Um, and also the hours would have made it incredibly difficult to, to do it as well. Now I'm regretting my decision. But mm. I, I, what flashed into my mind while you were talking just then was the um, Oscar Bistorius trial. Yeah. And uh, there were pictures because a lot of that was televised and there were pictures of Reva Steenkamp and her head and – I think they'd blurred maybe her facial features, but you could still see pretty clearly what had happened to her. Absolutely. Really graphic. It's awful. And I just think, you know, yeah, there's so many people that have sat on juries out there walking around that are probably still suffering the effects of being on that trial. Um, It's probably a good time to say if you are suffering from PTSD, trauma, anxiety or anything like that, you should definitely contact a health professional. There are people out there who can help. And when you think about it, it's it's just an image. It's just a picture in your head. It's not Mm. going to hurt you. No. But it does affect you somehow, doesn't it? Absolutely. And think about if you were sitting on a a child murder case and, you know, then, you know, you had to go home and bath your kids at night. Oh, It'd be so so awful. Yeah. So. Fascinating. mm. Mm. I, because I became convinced in my own sad mind that I had worked out where you were going to hide the bodies. Failed. I wanted to talk tonight about hiding bodies because my next one, and I don't think this is it, was that you would chop them up and make them into pies. Hot pies, cold drinks. Oh. No. Would that, because that, haven't You're not you cooking seen them in my oven. <laughs> Hang on a minute. You've seen Sweeney Todd, haven't you? Yes. And you've heard of Sweeney Todd. Yes. Is Sweeney Todd real or not? Well, I'd say not. Sweeney Todd is, well, let's just work through this, okay. shall we? Most people think that Sweeney Todd is a fictional character who first appeared. I didn't realise it was this long ago because I think of Johnny Depp. That, I think that was the most recent movie. Correct. There was even a Broadway musical. Uh, 1846 was the first time the character of Sweeney Todd was named in anything. And it's been retold in so many movies and songs. Um, th- there's other things, Broadway musical. In the original version of the story, uh, Sweeney Todd is a barber. 
and his victims. So if you haven't heard the story, he's he's a barber. Victims sit in his chair. He pretends he's going to um, do that, cut their hair or do their razor, you know, shave their beards and stuff. He pulls a lever. They fall backward down a revolving trap door into the basement of his shop. And when they fall down, they break their necks or their skulls. And if they're still alive after the fall, he goes down there with his, you know, those great blades they always have in old barber movies, yeah, and slits their throats or, as he would say, polish them off. In some versions of the story, he'd cut their throats before he dropped them down. But either way, they're dead as a doornail at the very bottom of it. And uh, then he robbed the dead victims of whatever they had on them. And then his partner in crime, Mrs Lovett, she would help him dispose of the bodies by baking their flesh into meat pies and selling them to unsuspecting customers at the pie shop. So you're ruining pies for me, and I really must say I do enjoy them. Not anymore. Uh, so the, in the story, the barbershop is at 152 Fleet Street in London, which is next to a church called St Dunstan's. And in the story, it's connected to the pie shop by um, an underground passage. And in the story, they hire this little orphan by the name of Tobias Rag to serve the pies to the customers. So... Um, Actually, just side note, while I was reading about this, in 2016, there was a high school in New Zealand that was doing a production of Sweeney Todd the Musical. I'm not sure exactly what had happened, but the, the razor blades, someone had put real razor blades and two kids got their throats cut. They both survived. They both went to hospital. One was hurt a little bit worse than the other one. but um... <laughs> And the props person got fired. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, look, researching into this was a guy called uh, Peter Haining, who's, who's uh, the late Peter Haining is now. He's written two books on Sweeney Todd and he claimed that he had found evidence that Sweeney Todd did actually exist. He said he'd been over archives in London and Washington, he'd looked at maps from the 18th century and he he actually said that Sweeney Todd's crimes were more gruesome than even what we've just talked about. Um, he talked about his background. He said he was a product of the East End slums. He even had a birth date for him, 26th of October, 1756, in a place called Brick Lane. Uh, he talked about his parents, that his mother had him when she was barely 20 years old. His father was an alcoholic. Lots and lots of detail in that. Unfortunately, though, um, none of those details check out. There are no records that match up with any of the findings that Peter Haining... He was quite insistent that those were absolutely correct, but there were no records. So um, Sweeney Todd, according to this Peter Haining, was um, executed for his murders in 1802. But again, there's no record of any trial for him or a death certificate or anything like that. Um, another writer, though, was working on a Sweeney Todd story for the BBC, and he also wanted to find out the truth of the story. And he said he went to St Dunstan's Church, which is the church that was supposedly next to Sweeney Todd's Fleet Street Barbershop. There was no record of at the church of anything that suggested that it was true. Uh, he said, though, his research did tell him that London in the 1760s was just a filthy and a terrifying place, as you can imagine. He said the the streets would have been filled with, as he says, shit, gin addicts, beggars, animal torture, passing for entertainment, and dead babies, which is pretty horrific, isn't it? He said it was just a brutal, brutal place. This is in the 1700s. The fact that we don't know of any serial killers from that time, I mean, there's Jack the Ripper, but that was about a century later, wasn't it, if not more? He said that may be due due to the fact that murder was just an accepted part of life in those depraved days. So maybe there was a Sweeney Todd, but he just wasn't 
remarkable because there were other people doing hideous things like that. So, uh, and just by the way, there's no um, records anywhere of Marjorie Lovett, the lady who supposedly made the pies, or Tobias Rag, the little boy. And that sounds like a made-up name. Come on. Tobias Rag? Yeah. I'm not buying it, are you? I'm thinking, is Sweeney Todd's real name Sweeney Todd? Aha. This is where it gets even more mysterious. So uh, the 1784 London Chronicle speaks of a most remarkable murder perpetrated by a journeyman barber near the Hyde Park corner. Uh, There was another story in 1818. There was a libel suit against a man called James Catnacht. Catnatch. He, this James Catnatch guy, apparently he printed and sold what were called chapbooks, which were like little tiny tabloid newspapers that people would buy and read all the gossip in. So he was, right. um, he was like a buckraker, you know, like a gossip person of the day. And he wrote in one of his little gossip magazines that human remains had been found in sausages served at a Drury Lane pork butcher's shop. And that drove the bloke who had the butcher shop out of business. But apparently oh. the, the... Who would have thought when you're just selling human parts that you go out of business because you've told everyone they're sausages? Well, the, but the butcher said it wasn't true, that it was just, it was libelous. And so he actually took the case to court. And so that uh, Charles Catnatch got sent to jail for causing trouble because he'd made the whole thing up. There is another theory, though. Okay. That Sweeney Todd might have been based on a Parisian person. So there was a magazine in 1825. I'm going to talk a little bit of French here too. And I'm going to do it as though I actually know how to speak French. Oh, accent. Which I don't. Uh, there was a magazine in 1825 called The Telltale Magazine. And it published a story called A Terrific Story of the Rue de la Harpe, Paris. Mm. Would it be Harpe? Five out of ten. There's more, so I've got time to get better at it. Um, the story that was published in that magazine was based on a book that had been published. The book was called Archive de la Police, which was released in 1816. And that had been written by this guy called Joseph Fouché, I think it is, who used to be the Minister of Police under Napoleon Bonaparte. So I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, OK, this guy's got credentials. Serious. He must know what he's talking about. If he wrote a book about this, he knows what he's talking about. So his book was about a barber who worked on the Rue de la Harpe and a baker who ran the pie shop next door. And the barber in this story, sound familiar? He murdered his patrons, took the bodies down to the basement where the wall had been knocked down, linking it to the pie shop, uh, the pie shop which had a reputation as the best in the city. Uh, The two of them, according to this book written by this former cop, were tried and found guilty at the Palais de Justice in 1801. Do you reckon that's how it's pronounced? You're getting Sounded towards good, an 8 out of 10. Yeah, you're, you're getting better. And um, and then in his book he says instead of the guillotine, they were torn to pieces on the rack. And he's, in the book he writes that the two houses that these things happened in were pulled down. Um, so all that was remained were people who maybe had a memory of it and had passed the story on. So... That story in France was reported in Britain as well as France uh, because they loved in Britain to spread anything that showed that everything had gone to the dogs in in Paris and so they loved the fact that there was this story and the British were fascinated by cannibalism. Think of all those weird old cartoons with maidens with their yeldy bosoms out and, you know, and they were cannibalising things and stuff. And you can imagine the 
chair flinging back into the floor being the yeah. Hollywood version. Yes. It looks better, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a possibility that that story from back in France was the story that turned into Sweeney Todd, but we still don't know whether the French Sweeney Todd story written by the former cop was real um, because there is no other record of the murders on the Rue de la Harpe outside of his book that he wrote. There's no other written documentation of it or of the perpetrators. Um, And um, there's another story going back even further known as L'Affaire de la Rue de Mamosets. Aren't Marmosets little animals that in the zoo? That was really good. It doesn't matter what they yeah. were, but that sounded really It's got another name because I'm on a roll now. La Légende de Barbier et tout pâtissier sanguinaire, which in brackets the legend of the barber and the bloody pastry seller. That's when you could use bloody as a descriptive word and not a swear word. And there's also a song <laughs> called La Rue de Marmosets, which sounds very much like Sweeney Todd, and it says... Towards the end of the 14th century, there lived a sort of demon barber who slit his client's throats at 24 Rue de Marmosets. He carried on this horrible trade and no one could resist him. In his cellar, he polished them off. His accomplice, a villainous pie merchant next door. None of that rhymes. That's a terrible song. No Maybe wonder. in French it makes sense. <laughs> no wonder we don't still sing that today in primary school. Um, and the place where that all apparently happened in Paris was all knocked down. There is some talk that there was a little marker there for some years, but that's gone now. So we will never know because the other thing that happened was any records, court records relating to that time were lost in a fire in 1871. So I still don't know. If you'd never eaten human, how would you know when you were eating human? What well, do I reckon it would taste would like you, pork. Would you, oh. Don't I you think? I don't know. I just, now I'm Horse. thinking about things I've eaten. How would you know? I feel like I'm 90% sure I haven't eaten human flesh. (laughs) I feel like it would be like horse, which is, doesn't horse go sort of gluey when it's... If you have eaten human, do not write to us. Do not contact me on social media. Do not find me. I do not want to know anything. I do not want to be a witness at your cannibalism trial. I do not want to be involved. (laughs) So there we have it. Sweeney Todd. So where are you going to bury the bodies? Not telling. Oh. Well, we've spoken to a number of people whose professions have meant that they have seen dead bodies. One that we haven't touched on yet is the medical profession. What about a, a doctor or a surgeon must surely have seen dead bodies? Hopefully not while they're still alive. Now, we're very lucky to have with us an oral and craniomaxillofacial surgeon. He's an associate professor, Andrew Heggie. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Um we're going to assume that you've seen dead bodies. Uh, well, yes. I think all doctors uh, are supposed to see dead bodies at some stage. Part of their training, really. Hopefully not, like, you know, as you go along. <laughs> you, don't, no, well, you don't want to see them now, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Our, our aim is to keep people uh, alive and well. Uh, but, of course, during uh, your uh, medical and even dental training, you obviously come across dead bodies uh, as part of your learning of uh, anatomy and the uh, maps of the body. So it comes quite early. Can you tell us about the first time you saw a dead body and what that involved? 
Well, um, our specialty trains in both medicine and dentistry, and I started off in dentistry, and in the second year of our course, we uh, had two full days a week for a, almost a year of uh, learning anatomy, and uh, so that led us to the Department of Anatomy at the University of Melbourne, and uh, that's where our first experience was, because it was a, a huge floor with uh, a vast numbers of... Uh, deceased human beings and uh, we all stood there as a cluster of students uh, uh, in almost horrified fascination about what we were to behold uh, prior to, you know, starting the uh, task of learning. How old were you, Andrew, when that happened? Uh, I was a little bit younger in university and uh, I was about 18 and a half and uh, there we were with our long hair in the 70s and uh, Mm. clutching our our anatomy books and dressed in our white coat, ready to uh, be uh, little professors. And how many, you say, you're saying a room full, how many dead bodies are we talking about? Well, I, I, I would have to just uh, hazard a guess, but uh, there was probably at least 50, because uh, they were all spaced out uh, for separate groups and, uh, you know, ready to start the process. Andrew, but was it all nice and neat and white sheets and, and, and things, or was it like in some Leonardo da Vinci etching, you know, where there's all <laughs> flayed flesh everywhere? What, what well, was it well, we are like? talking about the 20th century. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the anatomy department was uh, extremely well run, and, uh, and yes, they're all covered in a white sheet, and another uh, sensory uh, aspect that certainly hit the nostrils was the fact that uh, there was a pungent odour, which was uh, formaldehyde because the bodies had to be preserved, you know, to last a period of time because there were a lot of students involved over a long period of time. Did you know their names? Did they have names? Were they just bodies? Uh, no, they, they were... I think they were just designated by uh, numbers rather than any... It was all depersonalised from that point of view. We had no idea where they came from, but what we were obviously all aware of was that these are people who had given their their bodies to science and uh, given them to the university for others to learn. And uh, that was always in the back of one's mind that... Uh, it wasn't as if they were collected as, you know, strays or <laughs> in some other way. Um, <laughs> but, you know, these were people who really had uh, elected to help. And mm. so that gave quite a bit of respect to it all. Are their faces covered just to try and... Because no, it must be, no, feel very no, personal. Not, not at all. These bodies are termed cadavers. And I suppose that's a sort of a desensitising sort of term in a way, uh, meaning that uh, perhaps uh, apart from just being a a dead body, it was the term used for uh, scientific inquiry. And for dentists at that time, they studied obviously the facial anatomy of the jaws and uh, also the uh, thorax, so the heart and lungs and the the, uh, head and neck were the areas that we started off. Later, when I did medical school, there were more parts that were looked at. It wasn't quite as uh, dramatic as uh, in the 1970s, Uh, although there were still plenty of bodies laid out. um, It was a little bit more targeted to certain systems. So, and and nowadays, uh, 
things have changed even more in that uh, they have simulated anatomical dissections in various resins and plastic and a lot more videos. So slowly moving away from that model that was the uh, staple of uh, medical and dental uh, learning. Now, look, if anyone was going to cut me open, the only prerequisite for me would be confidence. I would never want someone to cut me open and hesitate. I just want them to know where everything is and just be very confident making that incision. But when you had to first cut open one of these bodies, were you terrified a little bit? Um, I wouldn't say terrified, but uh, it was certainly uh, an odd feeling uh, starting the dissections. But the teachers were there to to initiate the process and then to give us some direction as to how to go about it. And this is just it, uh, in that when you have a a task of learning ahead of you, it, it soon focuses your attention and you stop thinking about, you know, who... Uh, the person was or what the circumstances or your mind doesn't drift in the same way because it's been focused into uh, thinking about what you're doing. So I wouldn't say there was any particular nervousness. I think that uh, you have to realise that uh, students are starting on a Mm. on a process of learning, so it's probably best you don't donate your body. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be donating mine. Mine's going in the ground. So, Andrew, I mean, you know, in your particular field of expertise, being a cranio-maxillofacial surgeon, you had to examine the anatomy of the face and stuff. So say, for instance, you were looking at the, the jaw and the structure of the jaw and the teeth and stuff. Mm. Can you tell us where are you actually making the incision? How are you getting to the jaw? How, where do you cut? Well, there are uh, diagrams for where to make the incision, whether it's in front of the ear or, you know, through the cheek or under the jaw. Um, Usually uh, there's one layer uh, upon layer that's removed so you can slowly uh, go deeper and find the structures that uh, were in the accompanying textbooks or the uh, notes that you were given to uh, find each uh, part, the nerves, the arteries, the veins, the muscles, and where they all, how they all relate to one another. So you sort of have to peel through those layers then? Yes. Goodness yes. gracious. And, and it can get very uh, difficult and you can get a bit lost and uh, you need uh, you know, ex- experienced people to guide you and some bodies are obviously much fattier than others. Uh, the, thinner, the thinner cadavers were more popular because you can see things more easily. Don't you get lost <laughs> if you ever have to cut me open. Don't you get lost. That actually applies to surgery too, I might say. <laughs> yes, I saw, I saw a special Jamie Oliver did a few years ago where they had an enormously obese man and they showed inside all the fat. It was extraordinary. It was like mm. someone had put sacks of potatoes made of I fat know, inside know, it. Sort of makes you get back onto light and easy, really. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a sponsored segment. Thank you, Andrew, anyway. <laughs> hey, now, when you've had to take apart a body, and I imagine in different areas of, of medicine, you know, limbs have to be removed and different things have to be... But, but do you put the body... Do you make it whole again when you're done with the training? Yes, yes. There's quite, there's quite a, a process of... Uh, care in that respect and that uh, after dissections are finished even though some structures may have been removed um, there's a a very 
strong attempt to close everything up and uh, make good as much as you know is is reasonable, just as part of respecting the uh, privilege of being able to uh, uh, use these. Uh, donated bodies and to then have them uh, dealt with as the family wished. So uh, a lot of effort goes into that, no doubt about it. Now, this might be like a weird question, but you're the only person I've ever come across in my life that I can ask this to. Do bodies <laughs> involuntarily move after they're, uh, when, when they're dead? No, because uh, these are bodies that have uh, They've been, dead uh, a while. been been preserved yeah. and uh, there's some time... Uh, I know what you're thinking about, yes. where there's still some sort of reflexes uh, through nerves, which can occur even after death for, for quite some time. But uh, by the time the bodies have been frozen or uh, and, and or preserved, there, there, there's nothing uh, mm. like that. I mean, you know, if, a, if an arm falls off the table or something, it might give you a little bit of a fright, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> There's no genuine expectation that uh, there will be any return to the living uh, situation. Now, Andrew, I know you're a good, decent fellow. I should just mention to Chanel, Andrew is um, a wonderful supporter of the Children First Foundation, so he's always donating his time and um, operating on, on children who need it. So I know, Andrew, that you would never do anything so naughty, but when you were with your 18-year-old cohort that in those very early days, did you ever hear of anyone doing any pranks with the bodies that the teachers never knew about? Uh, you're not very naughty asking me that. Uh, <laughs> I, I know you wouldn't be involved in it, but did uh, well, you ever hear of anything? Fact, as a matter of fact, none of my group would have uh, had anything like the... Uh, temerity to do anything uh, that would be disrespectful but there were stories of from the anatomy school before our time where there'd be gardeners sort of down digging digging up the plants and a hand would land beside them and scare the uh, living daylights as it were out of them yes we did hear a few stories like that but i certainly can't vouch for it no. <laughs> no i can't imagine that would ever happen well look we so appreciate you um giving us a little insight into your working life and just one final question would you leave knowing what you know would you leave your body to science good question some of these things are always best for other people to do <laughs> particularly when you do know but I, look, I, I genuinely think that uh, it's a very decent thing to do and uh, I haven't actually made any decisions myself, but uh, <laughs> uh, I certainly admire those that do. Wonderful. Oh, look, we, we very much appreciate your time. Thank you for talking to us. That's a great pleasure. All the best. On the next episode of Dead Bodies. She made a statement, and I'm going to give it to you to read because I want to see your reaction as you read it. She never denied killing this woman. Here's, okay. here's her statement. As for the blood in the basin, I waited until it had coagulated, dried it in the oven, mm -hmm. ground it and mixed it with flour. This is not real. Keep going. This is her statement. She wrote it. With flour, sugar chocolate, mm -hmm. milk and eggs, yep. as well as a bit of margarine, kneading all the ingredients together, I made lots of crunchy tea cakes and served them to the ladies who came to visit 
though Giuseppe and I also ate them. Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vela and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.